0: Ah uh, yes, good morning. Officially, officially to you. Uh, I am it, it. The the potential that lies uh, before us um, to reach out to a world in confusion and chaos. Honestly, is like one one, one like no other. We, we haven't really had an experience like this in any of our lifetimes, um, for the most part. And so. Um, just keep that, keep that in mind. Look for those opportunities. And for those of us that have kids and, and uh, you know, the world has been canceled for them too with school and everything else, hey, bonus time with your kids. Uh, you, you, didn't, you didn't plan for this. You didn't expect this. We're always complaining about being too busy and having too much going on, and God has relieved you of that for a season. Make the most of it. Make the most of it. Um, Make the most of it. That's, that's all I can say. One of the things that, that I struggled with over the last about four days was, okay, is this something that we should pause everything in life here too, and just focus on and, and talk about what's, what's in the news and what's in the media and, and things like that? And, and I genuinely was considering that and pondering that and praying about that. And God, what do you want us to do? And I just got to the point where, you know what? Who's sick of hearing about it at this point? Exactly. So, enough said, right? Um, Let's go to God's Word and let's talk about some things from it. Um, strictly instead of what's happening in the world in this this moment and so um, we just thought hey let's just continue right along with where we're at and honestly uh, today's message especially and this whole series of things um, on the restoration movement on the birth of our church and things today's message is probably the one that means uh, the most to me because it is something that I've gotten a lot of chance to talk with people about uh, to teach some classes on and just to instruct people in and so it is something I'm definitely passionate About and our our hope for this whole series was that just in the end you could feel you could experience the desires of those that originally started this movement, that birthed churches just like this, that desire to restore biblical authority, something desperately needed in this world, even to this very day, that desire for unity among believers of all stripes and all uh, denominations and, and everyone, the unity of the believers of, of, of in Christ. And then finally, that call for believers to worldwide evangelism, those three main points, all based around Jesus' dying plea for us and his prayer in the garden when he prayed for unity, that he prayed for all of us, his followers from that moment on, that we would be one just as he and God are one. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me, that I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, and then the world will know that he sent Jesus and have loved them even as you have loved me. Remember, to his closest followers, he said these words, a new command I give to you, meaning this was something different. This wasn't the teaching of the day. Love one another. I don't think today's any different as I have loved you so you must also love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. People in this world of chaos right now should sense that we love one another. That's why we're willing to That's why we're willing to reach out and help those around us. This is our chance, church, to make an impact in this world. This is how the world will know we are followers of Jesus by our love for each other and our love and unity in Jesus His teachings, his actions now demonstrated through us to a world, an unbelieving world, was and is the plan for the church. It was never for people to see 30,000 plus different versions of the church across this world, some of which seem very, very similar, others of which seem to be teaching an entirely different Jesus, an entirely different scripture, entirely different ways, even denying Jesus and his absolute truths. The animosity, and this was something I never understood growing up, the animosity that exists even between different denominations, the anger, the hatred that has existed between these various religious factions, if you will. Doesn't that have to break the heart of Jesus who died for her, the church, his bride? It has to. So as you have discussions with people about the church, about denominations, about the things happening right now in culture. Remember to do so with grace, to let your words always be seasoned with salt, as Paul writes to the church in Colossae, to always be prepared to give an answer for why you're doing the things you're doing and why you have the hope that you have, but to do so with gentleness and respect it's important guys here's the honest to goodness truth I'm not making this up we tried to take a picture last night on our way to a family birthday party we passed a church had a digital sign in front this is what was on the digital sign remember from dust you came and to dust you will return now how is that encouraging in the chaos and the fear all around us right now think about it what is that church promoting peace was that season with salt <laughs> no, that was cayenne pepper, <laughs> okay? Like, what are you doing? You're trying to destroy people. This is a terrible thing. I'm not gonna mention their name because that would be bad of me, but seriously, I want to leave a note on the door. Come on, how are you helping Jesus in this? I wanna share that reminder to you, if you will, so that we can go into this one topic and then talk about just two things that we do within the church. The topic is this. It's the inerrancy of scripture. Now, simply put, it means that we believe that the words found, I'm going to knock that off, the words found in this book right here were inspired by God himself. They are God-breathed, as Paul writes, in that somehow, some way we do not understand the hows and the whys. God used that spirit to breathe into the pens of the authors who wrote this book. Somehow, The Holy Spirit carried them along, allowing the writers to influence these writings with their own personality, with their own life circumstances, and all of that, and yet still convey the words of God. It's an incredible process. That word, inerrancy or infallibility, simply means this, that when all the facts are known, the Bible and its original autographs, when properly interpreted, will prove itself without any errors in all the matters that it covers those matters will be perfectly in accord with the truth of God. Now, the Bible, therefore, is totally trustworthy in everything that it records and teaches. We talked about that earlier on in this series. Now, in this world in which we live, that is a controversial topic, to say the least, even amidst people within the church. But here's the issue at stake. If If one doesn't fully trust the word of God, meaning that maybe some of it's true, sure, but maybe some of it's not, then who gets to decide what is true and what is not? I read it this way from uh, Dr. Jack Cottrell. I got the pleasure of having him. He's a theologian of our age. He's very much elderly in years at this point and actually battling cancer as we Speak, but I got this from one of his writings. It says, Where does the denial of inerrancy ultimately leave us? First, it leaves us at the mercy of subjectivity. In the final analysis, each and every one of us will decide which biblical teachings we will accept and which we will reject. How will we do so? Great question. We'll do so based on something inside of us. Our own experiences, our own feelings, our own desires, our own subjective judgments about what we deem possible or what we deem right or what we deem objectionable. A second consequence is that of relativism. We will no longer, there will no longer be any such thing as truth in a genuine sense. No more objective, absolute truth. No more sound doctrine, no place to stand in order to establish some ideas as true and some as false. There will no longer be any agreed upon authority, no agreed upon authoritative source for seeking unity of doctrine. And so I ask you, if this, is, if this happens, where does that leave us? I would challenge you to believe that maybe it leaves us exactly where we are today, in the world today. Look around us. We're getting very, very close. People don't hold God's word to be true or the teachings therein. So as a church, we must hold to the truth found in God's word. Now, does it mean that we understand every single element of it or how it is interpreted? Or, no, no, not at all. I'll go back to the wisest man who ever lived, that guy named Solomon. He wrote these words in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. He said this, when I, Solomon, applied my mind, remember the wisdom that God gave him, to know the wisdom and to observe the labor and all that is done, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Could that be any more true than right now? No one can comprehend everything that what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim to know, they cannot really comprehend it. We read from the words of Isaiah a couple weeks ago, 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In the end, church, it does come down to a very simple word, faith. Do we have faith to believe? You see, even if we had every possible thing revealed to us, it was all right there on the plate for us to all all spelled out. Would everyone believe in Jesus? No. No, they wouldn't. We have proof of that. Remember, Jesus walked to this earth as a human, right? Everything was spelled out literally before their very own eyes. And yet very few came to faith. That's where we're at. Do you have questions about the Bible? I hope so. I do too. Let's work together on studying those, shall we? Let's try to figure some of this stuff out together, shall we? I think it's a great idea. I just wanted to share that explanation of inerrancy with you so you understand where we get our beliefs from, where we stand in the things that we talked about two weeks ago. If you missed that, that, that sermon or the one before it, that message about the beginning of the Restoration Movement and just the basic beliefs of our church, Berea Christian Church, and where we find those in scripture, then please go back and look at those. I think I might've even thrown a a slide up there. You can watch them on YouTube or you can download the podcast, either Google Play or the Apple Store, either one, you'll find that. Escape yourself, it's it's an old name. It has a, a good meaning. You can actually listen to why it's called that on there. There's a description of why I called it that. But there'll be other things posted there. Throughout time as well, the first week we showed we shared with you just the birth of the Restoration Movement, where churches like this came from, and then how they grew across the entire world. This movement was helped to create Berea Christian Church. Actually, not that far after. This was 1892. That was a, ended around 18, 1860s. So there's not even a, that big of a gap between the birth of the Restoration Movement and it's starting to spread, and this church actually being created. The second week, we talked about more of the personal beliefs of this church, more of the foundational beliefs of this church and most independent Christian churches. These key biblical principles that help us unify the body of Christ using God's word. They are absolutely crucial elements in sharing the truth of God, the truth of Jesus, the truth of Holy Spirit, the truth of his church, and the truth of God's word with an unbelieving world. And so that leaves us this week in the final message to just talk about two things, two things that are a big, big part of our church and the restoration movement as a whole. Some things that have been a focus of this movement since the very, very beginning. And truthfully, we believe something that has been a part of the church since the very, very beginning, according to scripture. And so that first one is the thing we call baptism now i grew up in a christian church very much like this one i never ever understood the difficulty that people had with baptism i just couldn't comprehend it i just didn't understand it now after almost 25 years of ministry at this point it's hard to believe but i've actually been doing something like this for almost 25 years i still don't understand the difficulties that people have with baptism because scripture is so clear as to what it is and what it represents and that's what we're going to talk about today listen to this beautiful Beautiful description. If you don't have a highlighted underlined asterisk in your own personal Bible or on your app that you read from, please do that right now. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What a beautiful picture that represents. As it's pointed out in other passages, baptism is more than just getting wet. It's not simply the washing away of dirt. There's so much more to it. You are submitting your life to Christ. You are dying to self as Jesus died on the cross. You are buried with him under the waters of baptism in the tomb as he was, and then you rise to a new life just as he did coming out of that grave, a new life now in Christ. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So my question becomes, when did baptism come become something other than this? Where did it become an optional thing? What were Jesus' thoughts on the idea of baptism? What about me? Sh- should I be baptized? What if I've been a believer for a really long time, but I've never submitted myself to baptism? Should I? Do I need to? Well, Let's talk about those things, shall we? I think it's a fun thing to do. It's my hope that these scriptures will enable you to better understand the history, the purpose, and then the significance of baptism. And our prayer is that once a person understands these things, then not only will they want to follow through with that decision, but my hope is they'll want to share that decision with as many other people as they possibly can that need to make the same. To be honest, the water behind me has been way too still around here for way too often, hasn't it? So where did it come from? That is a great question. Yes, in a sense, it does come from the Old Testament. The, the Jews have long been practicing different types of purification using water. Now, all of those things were ultimately kind of combined into one in this thing called the mikvah. These ritual washings and cleansings by immersion combined all those elements that were found in the Torah and other writings and formed the basis for the rabbinical mikvah laws. Those who put these rules together agreed and emphasized that the purpose of the mikvah was spiritual rather than a physical cleansing. They taught that as the mikvah cleanses the unclean, so does the Holy One cleanse all of Israel. So the roots of baptism absolutely rest very deeply and permanently in the soil of those Jewish scriptures and traditions, that is, that both baptism and the mikvah depict by an outward act— an inward transaction of faith, and both declare that only the Holy One, only God has the power to cleanse men's hearts and lives. Now, I've got lots more information on that if you're curious about the mikvah, but uh, I'll email you the link. You can read the articles yourself. Here's the thing. I want to focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to focus in on what this means. During the time of Jesus, there was a man named John the Baptist, now, how many of you heard John the Baptist as a little kid? You heard that name. I always wondered about that because we drove by a Baptist church on the way to church. So is that where he went? That was honestly my question. Was John a Baptist? That's like, is that really the guy that I'm supposed to get? No, John was not a Baptist. He was the Baptist. He was the baptizer, if you really want to say it correctly. He was just a man. But this man was ultimately recognized by Jesus as the man. Prophecy. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, that man who is the voice calling in the wilderness makes straight in the desert a highway for God. John had taken up residence in the desert, preaching a very familiar prophetic message Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, prophets of old said the same things. And he went on to tell them, Hey, repentance of sins. I baptize you with water for the repentance of your sins. But one is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie or carry, depending on the translation you're reading. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Many, 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 many went to go see John. They were convicted by his message to repent and be baptized. That call is still out there for anyone coming to Jesus today to repent and be baptized, but there's more to it. One of the most compelling moments in all of John's ministry was the day where he was out baptizing people, and in comes Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, John, baptize me. Now, I don't know because we can't read, you know, the fine print. We we don't have emotion written into our text. What John's real response was from his facial expression to his attitude, like in a joking way, you know, the NBA is kind of off right now if you know that or not. And so to kind of be like Steph Curry dropping by a church office tomorrow and say, hey, Chris, can you help me with my jump shot just a little bit? You know, like that, it's a very similar, you know, thing. John just had to look at him and be like, ah, are you sure about that? Like, I'm not, mm, Jesus, I'm not really qualified. Like, this is kind of above my pay scale. Like, I I think maybe instead, Jesus, you should baptize me. Don't you think? Like, that would be, and Jesus like, ah, here's the thing, John, it's not about you. (laughs) It's not at all. Here we go. Let's do it. Let it be now so. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, we don't know how long that conversation took, but I bet it wasn't just a few seconds. John definitely stuttered around and didn't want to do this at first because he recognized who Jesus was. And then it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, all of heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am. And well pleased. And at that moment, Jesus began his earthly ministry. Now, here's what we know about John's baptism it was for the remission of sins. That was it. And we know there was a difference between the baptism of John and the baptism taught by Jesus after the coming of the Holy Spirit, after the resurrection. How do we know this? Well, it's demonstrated in the book of Acts in chapter 18. A man named Apollos, a great preacher, a great pastor, was traveling the known world teaching correctly the name of Jesus and his teachings. But one day, a couple of followers of Paul, named Aquila and Priscilla, overheard Apollos, a great preacher, doing great things for the kingdom. But he only knew the baptism of John. And it says that they pulled him politely aside and said, hey, let me explain to you more fully the baptism of Jesus, meaning there's a difference between the two. And then from that moment on, Apollos went on preaching the baptism of Jesus. It's an incredible thing. So what is it? Well, Peter, one of the apostles, the leader, if you will, of the apostles, 1 Peter 3.21, says this about it. And this water symbolizes baptism and on that, that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Acts 2216. And now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized every one of you and wash your sins away calling on his name. Earlier we read from Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 4, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father we too may live a new life. There is that beautiful picture, again, of what baptism represents. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, "...in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and uncircumcised with your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. God forgave us all our sins. So the question becomes, who is it that makes us alive? God. One of those arguments that a lot of people have with baptism is that it is a work that saves you. No, 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 no. Baptism is not a work. Baptism is a gift of God. It is God at work on us and at work in us. It is not us. These scriptures clearly teach that. Paul writes to the young pastor Titus in chapter three, verse five. At one time, you too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit with whom whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having hope and eternal life. This is awesome and incredible news. But even after sharing those passages and others like it, there's a lot of people that still wonder, well, should I, do I need to get baptized? Is that something for me? Well, I want you to respond with some very simple yes or no answers to the following questions, okay? Let's start with Jesus. Did Jesus get baptized, yes or no? Yes, okay. Did Jesus need to be baptized? No, he was God. (laughs) He did not need baptism, yet he said he needed to do that to fulfill all righteousness, meaning that he did need to be baptized. Interesting, isn't it? He was perfect, sinless, spotless. The gift of the Holy Spirit, he is the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need the gift of the Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind. We talked about the Trinity a bit briefly last week. Finally, last question. Does Jesus tell us that we need to be baptized? Yes. Where's the question? Where's the decision that needs to happen in our minds and hearts in order for this to happen? Jesus commanded us, in fact, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a command of Jesus. It's not even a suggestion. It's a do this. In John 3, chapter, or verse 5, Jesus is having this conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who asks, "Well, what must I be? Do- what must I do to be born again?" And Jesus replies to him, "Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and the Spirit." What on earth is he talking about? So our prayer is that I, you're beginning to understand the significance of baptism, first and foremost, to Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. Then to the early church, to the disciples, to Paul, you see why when people heard the gospel message for the very first time, many times their next question was, hey, where's some water? I need to go. I need to be baptized right now in the name of Jesus. Now, many people will point to other things in scriptures that indicate, well, maybe it's not necessary. Maybe it's something that I have a... Almost every one of those events actually occurred before the resurrection. The thief on the cross, for example. Had a conversation with Jesus before Jesus ever died, before Jesus had rose from the dead, before the new covenant had actually been instituted. So that question's kind of, honestly, not really important. In the New Testament, the examples we have that virtually every case where someone responded to the gospel, it was followed by them making this decision to repent and follow Jesus, and then their baptism. Jesus continually reinforced the importance of baptism. He himself took the lead and demonstrated for us what it looked like to be baptized. So in my question is, who are we to question, to change, to emphasize something that was considered essential to Jesus, to Paul, to the disciples, and to the early church? Now, I say all of that And tie it up with this, there's no way that any human being can ever comprehend or fully explain the full measure of God's grace and his ability to choose to apply it or not to apply it in any situation. We can't determine that. It is not our place to even pretend to figure out or predict such things, but... If we are aware of God's commands, if we've heard the good news and we believe, then how should we respond? Another thing that must be emphasized is this is a personal decision. This is not something that can be made for you. It is you offering your life to to Jesus and submitting to him through this act. You are pledging to die to self, to allow him to resurrect your life and provide the life for you with the Holy Spirit from then on. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism is absolutely beautiful to behold because it is an example a physical example pictured of God's great love for us in His death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. He died. He was buried. All hope seemed to die with Him. Death literally darkened the faith of those disciples. It almost destroyed it completely. But by the glory of the Father, that passage says, Christ was raised from the dead never to die again. Hope was alive because Jesus was alive. Now, baptism celebrates Jesus Christ's triumph over death in each and every one of our lives. Those who are spiritually dead in sin, so many all around us right now, are literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death, are they not? Fear at every corner. However, we can choose to die to ourselves without having to die in our sin. When we choose to crucify ourselves with Christ, we die to our old way of living and of thinking. And what's awesome is the death to self now brings life in the Savior, Jesus. This is an exchange. It's a tremendous exchange of our old life for Christ's new life, which makes the past that every one of us will experience, our past to death, through death, into paradise, a reality his resurrection, his resurrected life empowers our current life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Understand this, that baptism has to follow a true belief in God. Baptism before belief, it's not real. It's, not, it's a counterfeit claim. For example, A baby's baptism, there's nothing incorrect or wrong about it in Scripture. In fact, it actually doesn't exist in Scripture. To make that commitment to raise a child in the ways of the Lord, is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. But it is not an illustration of the infant's conversion because they did not make that decision on their own. A believer's baptism is a public, bold declaration of death to self and being raised to walk in the newness of life. The last thing that, that I'll share in, in this topic before we switch to the final one, which is very short, is this. A lot of people, as I've had classes, I've talked with people about this idea of baptism, they how often have a question at the end of the conversation. When? When is a person supposed to get baptized? To which a lot of people respond, well, I wanna get baptized, but but I really need to do this first. I need to be a better prayer. I need to read more of the Bible. I need to do this. I need to get my life all cleaned up and all of those kinds of things. Let me share with you the reality of that sinful thought process. It actually delays, rebels against the very purpose, the very reason, and the very meaning for baptism. God wants you exactly as you are. And if you're willing to believe in him and confess your sins, then he wants to take over from there. There's so many examples in the New Testament of people coming to hear the gospel message and then wanting to make that decision to be baptized. But the one I will always share with you comes from the book of Acts, chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. It's, it's the famous story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And there's so many facets to the story that amaze me. The fact that he was even in Jerusalem for the Passover, celebrating the feasts, Yet he's traveling back and Philip is prompted by God to head south out of town and go meet somebody, he doesn't know who, on the roadside. And as he approaches, he finds this chariot with this man reading in it, indicating he was a man of wealth because he had his own copies of some of the scriptures, in this case, the book of Isaiah. One of the the best lines in all of scripture is in this one. It is one of the best lines in all of scriptures. Philip goes up to him and says, hey, man, how you doing? Probably kept six feet distance. Anyway, hey, how you doing? Uh, what you reading? Well, I read this. Do you understand what you're reading? And the man has the, one of the best lines in all of Scripture. How can I understand it if nobody explains it to me? Huh. When you're talking to people about Jesus, when you're sharing them the love of Jesus, how can they understand it if you don't explain it to them or provide the resources for them to learn what it means? This man spells it out perfectly And then they have this conversation, he's reading from the book of Isaiah, he's reading about this spotless lamb that was led to slaughter, and Philip's like, hey, I know that lamb, let me share with you the full story. That prophecy now revealed, here it is in real life. We don't know if that conversation took five minutes, 10 minutes, two days, we don't have a clue. But what we do know is at the end of that story, that man is convicted and he says, hey, there's water, why shouldn't I be baptized? to which Philip, of course, goes and immediately immerses him and then disappears. Teleportation takes him back to Israel or back to Jerusalem, and the Ethiopian eunuch is on his way. It's an incredible story if you've never read all of it, but it indicates exactly how we are to respond when we realize that this is what we're supposed to do. Now, one of the really cool things that I love sharing with people is think of what Jesus did on this earth. Think of all the amazing things that Jesus did on this earth. How many of them can you do as well? I'm in the neighborhood of zero. I don't know about you, okay? But that's where I sit. Um, But there is a few. There are a few things that I can do, and this is one of them. I can literally follow Jesus' lead into the water. I can submit myself into the hand of a brother or sister in Christ and allow them to take me through this incredible, beautiful act that he himself demonstrated for us. How special is that to be a part of? Obviously, this oftentimes represents the first decision anyone makes for Christ, to accept Christ. This is the consummation, if you will, of that decision. But many people have made a decision to accept Christ, but never submitted themselves to the waters of baptism, and so that door is always going to be open. And it's hard to relay that to a crowd that a lot of people have been at church their whole life, but maybe they grew up in a different denomination. This was never something that they experienced. Who knows? So as we have an invitation time here in a moment, obviously that door is wide open It's not planned at all, but I can tell you in advance that there is someone getting baptized second service. They came to me last week and said, hey, I would like to do this next week. And I said, awesome. It just so happens that next week we're talking about baptism. Yeah, go figure how God does such things. We'll close with that here in a moment. The second thing is very brief that we're gonna talk about, and that is this act that sits before me on this table. This was a big, big, big deal in the founding of the Restoration Movement. Because one of the things that had happened in the church was communion was no longer open. Communion was no longer open. If you just visited a church somewhere out and about and you were not part of that church or that denomination, they did not permit you to have communion. And this was a big problem for those that began this movement. They wanted to have open communion so that anyone who came in a believer in Christ would be welcome to partake in the Lord's Supper. It was a big Big deal. Now Jesus instituted this remembrance, which we have way oversimplified absolutely in the in the for the necessity, convenience, whatever you want to call it. But here's the thing. Jesus instituted this remembrance, but it is more than a memorial to Christ and what he did. It is more than just a time to offer thanksgiving. The Lord's supper, the breaking of bread is one of the main spiritual exercises that you and I can partake in that can help keep our faith strong. It helps keep our faith alive. It helps keep our faith focused on the most important thing. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of self-examination, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. In order for us to understand it, we have to understand the revolution that took place in establishing it. At this point in time, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the Jews had literally been celebrating the Passover year since the days of Moses in the Exodus. We're talking a very, very, very long time. And everything within that supper has its place and its purpose. And next year, around this time of year, I get to share all that with you because we're having a group from Jews, and Jesus, Jews for Jesus come in to share with you what the Passover meal actually represents. It's an incredible thing. And every Jew knew what the Passover feast meant. And Jesus at the end of the dinner said, yeah, I know you think you know what all this means, but I gotta tell you something a little different. Yes, it meant that then, but it was all a foreshadowing of what was about to happen to me tonight. And so he redefined the meaning of that unleavened bread for the rest of eternity. He redefined the meaning of that cherished Jewish cup of wine. It plays such a significant role in the Seder meal that you'll learn about next year, so make sure you're here. He redefined it for all eternity at this moment. We'll read from Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus interrupted everyone. He took the bread and he had given thanks and he broke it. And he gave them to disciples, all normal up to that point. And then he said, take and eat, this is my body. Luke adds in 22:19, this is my body which is given for you. Paul adds later, this is my body which was broken for you. And they all took that. And can you imagine as they ate that and him saying that, wondering, what on earth are you talking about, Jesus? This made no sense in the moment. Don't think for a second that they thought what you do when you take that. They had no idea what was about to happen. And then there was some time that passed. And then Jesus picked up that traditional cup of wine. And he said, hey, guys, here's the thing. Um, Take this cup, I want you to drink from it, and I want you to remember that this blood is my covenant. It's the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. While they're going, no, Jesus, this cup represents the blood that was on the doorpost that saved, you know what? What are you talking about, Jesus? They didn't understand that soon his blood would be spattered all over that doorpost called the cross for their forgiveness of their sins. They didn't, didn't get that didn't understand that in the moment. And so it began. From that moment on, as the early church was established the day of Pentecost, they opened their doors on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection. And it says that when they gathered, they broke bread with one another. Now, it goes on to say every time they met, there's debate as to whether or not you're supposed to have communion at your small groups, right? Okay, we don't know. But it does say that they did that each and every time they met. We observe it here each and every week, the Lord's Supper, a time when we get to remember the covenant that was established, which he is established with all who would choose to believe and to follow him. And so as we enter into that time of communion and decision, we're going to combine those two. What's nice is, you know, in today's, we aren't going to pass the trays today. We aren't going to pass the plates. You've all done that before. In 2009, 2010, you did not pass the trays. I've got guarantee it, you didn't. Our church didn't either. It was one of those things that we, we did for a season So we're going to ask you to come forward, but what's really beautiful about that is if God is, the Spirit is moving in you to come forward and join me or your spouse or whoever it is that you would like to partake of that gift of baptism with, it's perfect time because everybody else is getting up anyway. Nobody will notice that you stay, and we get to experience that together later. And So so I'm going to pray, and then there'll be a a song, if you will, a a short video kind of introducing the song. And then a, a song to go with that. And I would say, if it's, if it's cool with Tyler, just during that song, while they're singing, go ahead, come up, get your communion. If there's a decision that needs to be made that God's placing in your heart, do it at that point in time. And then we'll address those decisions at the end of that song, um, because I, I, God can move in anyone at any time, whether you've been here for five years, 10 years, <laughs> 92 years. in the back, I mean, God can move in anybody at any time, and if it's just a realization that you've come to, then man, we would be honored to be a part of that with you. Father God, as we come before you this morning with the fear and chaos surrounding us in the world, I just don't sense that in this room. Father, I sense your peace amongst your people, which is exactly where it should be, and Father, we need to take this peace to the world around us and provide it for all who will listen Help to ease their fears. Help them to point the direction of hope that they don't currently have in your direction. You are the only provider of hope in this fallen world. As things continue to unfold, we pray for those that have the illness. We pray for those that have been exposed. We pray for those whose lives truly are at risk for contracting this disease. We don't wanna make light of any of that. That's very real. It's a very real concern for those individuals, for their families. And we, we pray that we get an opportunity to minister to those people in those times of grief and need. But we pray amongst your people, Father, that you do provide the peace we need to continue living our lives for you. The extra time that we have with our families, opportunities to love on them a little more. Father, what an incredible gift that is. And Fathers, we study this incredibly beautiful act of baptism that you gave us and what it represents. And we we talk about this Lord's Supper that you instituted on that very night prior to your death, prior to your arrest. Father, we get to reflect on what that means. We get to look inwardly at us, or there decisions or the things we need to do in our lives that, Father, you are convicting us of in this moment? Father, be with us as a church as we move forward and look for ways to reach out to our community as we find needs, as those arise. Let us unite and go and serve and meet those people where they are. Father, we love you and we pray for your hand to move. It's in Jesus' name.